morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I'm your host, Philip Coover. I'm a partner in Ice Miller's Real Estate Practice Group. Here with me today is my, my favorite co-host, Jay Augustin, my partner also at Ice Miller Real Estate Practice Group. Jay, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Phil, thanks for having me. I haven't been on in a while. You know, I've been out in the streets trying to sell my edgier companion podcast, Real Estate After Dark, and I've shockingly had no takers. So I'm back. And then we we also, of course, have our, our distinguished guests here today from Lincoln Property Company Midwest. We have Peter Kelly, Dan Reedy. Peter, Dan, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Good morning. Happy to be here. Awesome. Peter, why don't you kick us off and tell us just a little bit about uh, Lincoln Property Company as a whole, and then also just kind of more specifically your position, your role at the company. Sure. Uh, Lincoln Property Company is a private company founded in Dallas by Mac Pogue in 1965. Uh, we were founded as an apartment developer and eventually evolved into um, a diverse, privately held, uh, vertically integrated operator and developer of properties. Um, today, if you look, we've got coverage all around the U.S. and in, uh, in Europe, mainly Eastern Europe and the U.K., we manage about 275 million square feet of real estate on behalf of third-party institutional clients. And in the last five years alone, uh, we've acquired and or developed $22 billion worth of commercial projects across various asset classes. It's a unique time in our company's history. Uh, a month ago today, actually, we announced a, a succession plan whereby a, a private equity firm, Stone Point Capital, came in with a significant investment. Um, and it's really just built around growth, 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 growth. Um, Stone Point is a entrepreneurial, nimble uh, capital partner. They've been in business for approximately 20 years. They've made 150 investments like this. Um, and many of those are complementary to our business. And we're excited about what the future has to hold. Yeah, that's really cool. Um... We're definitely going to get into that and kind of the growth mindset and what you all are looking to accomplish. We're going to hold that thought uh, for just a second and we're going to introduce Dan. Dan, why don't you, you give us a similar explanation of your role at the company? Yeah, sure. So I started uh, about three and a half years ago at Lincoln Midwest office here in Chicago. Prior to that, I was at JLL for many years, and uh, most recently, JLL was doing a fair amount of build-to-suit, tenor rep work across the country for various logistics users, FedEx Ground, XPO, USPS, and the like. Um, came on board to really jumpstart and spearhead Lincoln Midwest's uh, industrial practice and really specifically focus on growing the development vertical within within the Midwest region. So um, we have two active projects underway right now that we're finishing up, one in Indianapolis, one in Columbus, outside of Columbus. Uh, those will both be wrapping up here in the next couple of months and working on leasing those and uh, on the hunt for more uh, in the region, um, working through the headwinds in the market, I'm sure we'll talk about later. Yeah. No, thanks for that overview, Dan. And Peter, I think you talked a little bit about the company as a whole, but I think I, um, I'd like to hear just a little bit about your role within the company and how long you've been there too. Sure. Uh, it's almost 11 years to the day. Uh, I am the EVP and the regional partner for the Midwest. So I'm tasked with all things 
commercial across uh, the traditional Midwest. You know, what I like about this is every day is different. Um, we're, we're pursuing development deals, service deals, um, you know, managing people and, and we building a great culture. Yeah. I would imagine that the company is pretty different too. I mean, if you started 11 years ago, you started 2012, kind of like right in the middle of, or the tail end of that recession. And then it's been a little bit of a ride over the past 11 years from just from a market standpoint. So it's awesome how well the company's navigated all the different types of environments you've had to face. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think what, what, um, what drew me to Lincoln was just the long tenure of our most of our employees. I mean, I, I bring the average down with 11 years of experience here, but um, I just think that speaks to Lincoln and how we take care of our people. And, um, you know, a, a mentor of mine, John Grissom, uh, always ingrained in me that, you know, two things, people and processes. And if you master those, uh, you can navigate anything. And I think that speaks to, um, you know, what Lincoln has done to bring in the right people and build the right culture. Dan, one of the questions that I have, you know, kind of building on, on Peter's thoughts on, on people and culture and kind of the longstanding nature of, of the, the Lincoln property company um, kind of set up and, and leadership, how, have, how has that impacted your approach to the headwinds that you guys are facing in the marketplace right now, right? Obviously, uh, you know, the, the debt markets are tight. Capital is not exactly sure whether it's time to put, you know, put money in the market or kind of hang back. There's disconnects between sellers and buyers. What do you think, what is Lincoln's unique advantage given its culture and kind of approaching opportunity in, in this current market? Yeah, so a couple things on that. I think one of the one of the unique aspects of Lincoln, which Peter touched on, is we're, we're really a very entrepreneurial group and we, um, we don't really have any mandates. So I kind of view that as, as a window to being nimble in this environment that we're in. You know, we operate both as an owner-operator developer of assets as well as a fee-based service provider for a number of our clients in the region and across the country. So, you know, one of the way one of the unique aspects of, of being here is we're just diversified for that reason. And we can kind of pull on different levers of, of the business depending on what's going on out in the world right now. We also have, you know, a number of different service lines within the company, ranging from uh, obviously industrial office. Uh, we have a burgeoning uh, data center practice that we're partnered with in Columbus, uh, Jay, as you know. And there's some other kind of new new announcements in the works for some of our other verticals uh, that that are that are coming to the forefront. So it's really kind of a, a special place because of how small and nimble we are, but also just kind of how wide and deep we go from a service level standpoint and product type standpoint. Peter, given kind of that kind of uh, the entrepreneurial spirit and the ability to be nimble, uh, I know we're going to talk a lot about industrial as, as we move along, but given that you have a, you have a focus uh, almost kind of beyond industrial, what other areas uh, are, is Lincoln looking into right now and future, uh, you know, future exploration and investment um, aside from industrial? We are as a company, Firm believers, believers in mixed use. Um, I think our pipeline today is roughly 22,000 units with an aggregate dollar value of $11 billion. And that's not something we've necessarily focused on in the Midwest, but that's something that uh, we do plan to focus on here very, very soon. 
you know, I think, you know, our job is really to be the local market experts, right? We, we always partner with, with capital and they're looking for us to tell them why to do it. And so we're always looking to get ahead of trends and really get the story out there as to why you should be in a market like Columbus or why you should be in a market like suburban Chicago. So um, it's not necessarily product driven, although some you know, product types are easier. It's more about creating the narrative and executing on that story. Does the, the Stone Point investment introduction change your relationship with third party capital or will there still be a, a robust pursuit of, of your historical third party capital providers uh, and new relationships as you explore future projects? It, does, it doesn't change a thing um, from the outside. So we are still looking to uh, you know, operating in a GP role, uh, we bring our own capital. We're highly selective because it's our own capital and uh, nothing will change uh, from that perspective. One of the things we like to do in this podcast is just kind of think about what's uh, really good asset classes right now, what's hot right now and what, what will be hot over the next year. And so you, you mentioned mixed use. Is that going to be a focus um, to develop mixed use? And you say mixed use just I take that as you know retail and multifamily together, residential and commercial. Uh, is that what you're looking at? Usually, it's not industrial and residential together. Typically, not. Yeah, I think it really depends on the geography, right? Like, I mean, there are parts of uh, the West Coast where office is prolific, creative office, and those those um, uses are more prominent than what we probably see in the Midwest, which is probably more traditional. Uh, retail with with resi above um, we do have a site in an urban setting that was slated for office and we're taking a step back and we're reevaluating that right now i think the highest and best use will be some sort of uh, complementary combination of office and uh, either hospitality or resi um, you know th those uses tend to work in terms of parking demand uh, since your office workers uh, historically work during the day and you're your dwellers need the, the parking at night primarily, but we're going to look to do more of that. I think probably Midwest is more likely going to be uh, a combination of retail and resi. There's a new term that I heard earlier this week on a linking call called bed, uh, beds and sheds. Um, so I think that kind of speaks to what we're thinking, right? I think over the next couple of years, obviously office is tough while we try to find our floor, but we have seen no slowdown in terms of demand on on the resi side and on the industrial side. Peter, you may not know this, but it seems like you and Phil must have connected before this podcast because there's not, look at it, if you could see his face, there's nothing he likes more than being able to like hit it with a phrase that's going to resonate. Like I could, as soon as you said beds and sheds, before he even started to smile, I knew he was going to love that. Uh, so thank you so much for bringing it. So we have our title, title for our podcast. Like we've got the whole thing is now like all neatly delivered and packaged with beds and sheds. Credit to Lincoln Property Company for uh, for for propagating the term. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, in terms of uh, your development efforts and specifically your focus uh, in industrial logistics development, I know you're also working with your data center folks. You mentioned hitting on on Columbus, hitting on you know just outside Indianapolis. Are are those geographies you're looking to potentially double down on as you explore opportunities, uh, or you know are there other spots in the Midwest that that you find uh, potentially attractive right now? 
Yeah, I uh, definitely starting with Columbus and Ohio, in Ohio. You know, there's a number of reasons we like we like Columbus. You know, it's the fastest growing metro in the Midwest. It also is one of the primary regional hubs for logistics in the Midwest. You can access, you know, 50% of the U.S. population within a day's drive. So it's got kind of the two critical elements of being a great distribution market for those two reasons. You've got headcount growth and and just access to rooftops and people. Uh, and then on top of that, it is just a very business friendly, Columbus especially, is a very business friendly metro area. They've done a tremendous amount of work to kind of streamline their economic development group called One Columbus. Um, they do a lot to make things easy for users who are coming into the market looking to open a, you know, a new plant or, you know, a new major distribution hub or whatever the case may be. There's also a lot of uh, collaboration and cooperation between the economic development agencies, the municipalities, and the utility companies. So we've seen a lot of really proactive work on behalf of the utilities and municipalities to set the table for users to come in and really plug and play, uh, whether it be access to power, water, upgraded roads, uh, rail access, you name it. Those are just kind of high level why we why we like Columbus a lot. Intel liked it a lot too. I, obviously, they're they're planning that major chip plant there outside of Columbus in New Albany. Um, I also think we're going to see Honda announced an EV battery plant in Fayette County. I think we're going to see more of that, especially um, in Ohio and in Michigan as well. Anywhere where there's kind of established vehicle car manufacturing labor pools that folks can tap into um, with access to rail, transportation networks, et cetera. So, yes, uh, Columbus for sure. Um, Columbus is also a big data center market as well and a growing data center market. So that helps kind of diversify the business case a little bit for certain areas where you could do either industrial or data center. Indianapolis, yes, I think it I think Indianapolis has a has a little bit more development in the pipeline than we'd like to see, but it's still, you know, it's still the crossroads of America, five interchanges or five interstates cross there. FedEx continues to expand their their air hub now. Indianapolis is like I think a top five uh, air cargo hub in the US now. So I think for Indy, it's going to be a little more, more localized to uh, kind of the west side of town, closer to the airport and closer to kind of like major corridors leading to Chicago and, uh, and Louisville. Um, and then, of course, there's Chicago. Um, within Chicago, it's, it, it's really kind of a question of where we like southeast Wisconsin, kind of the, the northern corridor uh, quite a bit, parts of DuPage County closer to the airport. Uh, we're not alone there, by the way, in that interest level. But um, I do think Southeast Wisconsin, in large part due to the investments that the state has made to uh, enhance the 94 corridor and create all those interchanges um, leading up towards Milwaukee. And again, you've seen a lot of investment from municipalities related to the Foxconn plant that I think are attractive to us for that reason. Yeah, outside of that, you know, Minneapolis is a good market again for population growth, but not a great distribution hub. It's really, it's really just an end user market. And Detroit has some positive 
metrics as well, which we're just starting to kind of explore this year. In your in the exploration of Southeast Wisconsin, uh, do developers uh, and you know potential uh, end user tenants feel comfortable in being able to pull the labor market from from Illinois across the border, uh, or does, uh, is the the worker the workforce generally generated from from the state itself? So what we've seen is a lot of the workforce actually in Kenosha, specifically in Kenosha County, actually travels outside of the county for for work. So for that reason, you know, I think it's it it hasn't it, it hasn't experienced any kind of distress yet in terms of the deep labor pool. I do know that housing is an acute demand there, or la- you know, just because of the lack of product. But I do you know I do think we're going to see more rooftops, more apartment units being built in Southeast Wisconsin just because of folks relocating from Illinois and wanting to be closer to that kind of burgeoning labor pool up there. Uline is another group I didn't mention. They they just continue to invest in that area. They have, I think they're like 7 million square feet or so on under roof for warehouse product in that market, which is just amazing how fast they've grown in a short period of time. Yeah, it seems like some an opportunity for some beds and sheds up there in Kenosha. Yes, <laughs> for sure. I also like the the Columbus discussion. I was on a construction call with like our construction team members on Friday, and they were just talking about all of the construction work and projects that they're seeing in Columbus. Just further to what you're talking about, like I I haven't heard so much Columbus talk outside of college football season uh, in my life, but there seems to be something in the water there with how they're. And I think it's a lot of what you had to say, Dan. It's like a lot of what they're. The government, the local state and local government is trying to foster development there. And it seems like it's really yeah. uh, working. So, yeah, we we like it a lot. I, I think we're I think we're going to continue to try to do more there. And um, I think they're I think they're poised to really capture a lot of the kind of the reshoring and manufacturing boom that I think is coming. Dan, a lot of it may be a lot of it may be self-explanatory, but it, could you expand a little bit on the importance of having a, a partner uh, in your local government uh, when looking to develop a property uh, in, in observing how it played you know, in and around the Columbus project? It just seemed like it was able to, to move things along, expedite things, make it more attractive to third party capital. But maybe talk a little bit about your experiences uh, specifically with that government and, and the aspects of that governmental engagement that, that really made that project sing. Yeah, so you know our experience in Columbus, we, you know Jay, as you know, we we have our, our project is in New Albany, Ohio, um, and New Albany is actually very unique, at least in the Midwest regions we we cover because they have this uh, basically land development entity called the New Albany Company that is a kind of a go between between end users as well as uh, developers like like us and basically farm owners. Uh, and and the municipality, so they really make developers and and users' lives a lot easier to come in and build products and streamline kind of the approvals process because they've effectively set the table. They'll they'll take care of you know things like wetlands permitting, uh, rezoning of properties, obviously you know going into Farmer John's house to buy you know to buy the property in the first place doing an assemblage if, if, if it's needed, you know, just kind of taking care of some of that upfront blocking and tackling that can just be very time consuming and 
fraught with, you know, delays and challenges and difficult sellers and approvals from the federal government for, 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 for wetlands mitigation, just all those things. Um, they've been a tremendous asset to us in that community for that reason. And uh, I think I think a lot of other folks are, are taking note of that as well, uh, as we've seen with Intel and other major users coming to the market uh, to establish a big presence. Well, it would be 2023 if, if we didn't talk a little bit about just the challenges in the market, construction costs, interest rates are higher, potentially going up further. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of challenges in the market as to development? Yeah, I can take that. It's kind of multifaceted. I think really starting with the banks and, you know, obviously interest rates have gone up, loan to, val- loan to cost ratios have gone down. On top of that now, some banks are just totally redlining certain markets that they may have overexposure to right now with existing supply. You're also seeing most banks uh, institute recourse loans, which can be something that we definitely steer away from. So those are some challenges. I think, you know, the banks are, you know, the banks have to do what they need to do with regards to interest rates. Um, But the other thing that's really hampering them is the capital markets activity or lack thereof. So you're seeing a lot of groups exercising extensions on construction loans. And just because they're, you know, they're unable or unwilling to sell the industrial product that they've built uh, in this environment that we're in. So banks are having to extend these loans and they are, they're unable to get, you know, recycle the cash for, for new loans. So that's been a little bit of a, a, a big is, issue and it's, it, it's really kind of trickled down. You know, if you can't get, if you can't get debt, you can't really do anything else unless you're a big re like a Prologis or a, a Brookfield or a group like that who just builds on, on their balance sheet. Capital markets, I think, are thawing out a little bit. Uh, I've seen a number of, a handful of comps, I should say, in the Midwest just over the past, call it two, three months. Um, so maybe that'll help give some folks some price certainty to, to, to go out in the market. However, with like the January jobs report coming out as high as it did, I think uh, Powell's going to ratchet back up the interest rate increases and i don't know what that's i don't know what that's going to do to the market i think just to build on what dan said i mean we we have a math problem we don't have a demand problem right and when and when you look at what prologis is predicting um you know despite the 10 percent rent growth we're seeing across the country for industrial we're we're anticipating they're anticipating a 60 percent decline in in development starts um and and that translates to uh, a lack of new product, even though the, the demand is there to prop it up. Um, so we're expecting, uh, you know, 275 million square feet of deliveries in calendar year 23. If none of that space were to lease, that would take our national vacancy rate up to 5.9%, which is well below the long-term average. So 5.9% if we delivered 275 million square feet and didn't lease a single foot. I've had recent conversations where a lot of on both the tenant side as well as the landlord side, just about their, their worry about their just lack of vacancies, lack of options. And I, I mean, that has to just come out in, in terms of like an increased rent, right? Like that has to be what will happen if there's just nowhere for companies to go. 
Yeah, I mean, we're absolutely seeing rent, renting increases. Uh, it seems to be very localized, though. Um, certain markets and certain kind of size tenant sizes are seeing more rent growth than others. Um, like, you know, Columbus has seen a lot of rent growth for the smaller users, not really much at all for the bigger users. When I say smaller, call it less than, you know, 75,000 square feet. In Indianapolis, the rent growth has been a little more muted. Uh, same thing with Chicago. It's really just, it's it's kind of hit or miss. Um, I think in general, rent growth is going to continue to tick up. But, you know, time will kind of tell if the, if the demand kind of keeps up with the supply that's in the pipeline in the market. And that's obviously the million dollar question that everyone's got their eyes on right now. Peter, when... Um... When you guys in Chicago identify a project in the Midwest, share a little bit about the process with kind of getting the, you know, getting the go ahead from from Big Lincoln uh, in terms of both Midwest's office ability to, to kind of act quickly, kind of the nature of your relationship with the other the other Lincoln offices, how you collaborate, you know, versus, you know, it, you know, being that the Southeast has been so hot in industrial development. Uh, is there pressure in the Midwest to have to deliver a, an A plus? Not that you don't always want to deliver an A plus product uh, or project. Just discuss a little bit how that process works internally when when you're selling uh, Big Lincoln on uh, a development site in the Midwest. Yeah, I think it's a platform built on trust. Um, you know, I would tell people that I've never really been through an uh, investment committee meeting. I mean, it's more of um, the, they they rely on the local partners to source opportunities. And uh, they trust and believe that we have an eye for the right opportunities, uh, outsized returns. So it, it's really just, um, you know, we, we, we send pipelines down to Dallas naturally to uh, keep them in the loop on what's going on. But if we believe in a project, it's a phone call down to our partners and say, we believe in this. Are you in? And they say, yes. You know, we're unique in the, in the sense that we're always trying to pair the opportunity with the right capital source. We have a ton of institutional partners. Uh, we have centralized capital markets in Dallas. And so they have a pulse on, on who's doing what around the country. And if we need the support, they're there if we're struggling to find the right partner for the right opportunity. But generally, it's, um, it's fairly hands-off, and they leave it up to us to, to dictate strategy and execution. But they, they're always there to support and help if we need it. Have you found that, uh, kind of given wh where we are in the marketplace with the debt markets and everything else, that, that there's been pressure to kind of identify sites and maybe some capital providers who might be willing to take an IRR hit to, to hold on to some land for a little bit, kind of betting on its fundamentals, but understanding that maybe development, you know, short-term development doesn't make a lot of sense right now? Yeah, I mean, there's, I would say historically, Lincoln never land banked anything, right? I mean, typically our, our uh, projects are measured on an IRR and time is not your friend. Um, that mindset is changing. I think if we could find the right opportunities in today's environment, we would move forward and we would be open to banking and building a long, sustainable pipeline. I think the challenge from our perspective day to day is that sellers are wary. You know, a lot of uh, buyers have, have tried to extend contracts or extend options, especially, you know, development, right? These, these land contracts are months, if not years. And so they're wary and they don't want to be tied up. But if, if we can find the right opportunity, we're going to seize it. We're going to go forward. Whether that means we develop it 
uh, today or a year from now, but we, we long believe in the long-term fundamentals uh, of industrial. And as Dan alluded to, we think it's going to continue to grow. As yeah, so speaking of growth, uh, let's circle back a little bit on the Stone Point investment. That's really exciting news for you guys to share in this podcast. Um, and you, you mentioned that their plan is growth. It's encouraging for me as a service provider, whenever people are talking in 2023 about growth and doing new projects, you know, that's, that's great for us. Um, that's really, like I said, encouraging to hear that people are making investments and, and thinking long-term and short-term about growth. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, about the feeling of, of having that influx and, and what you all are set out to do? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, underwriting a company like us is, is, is extremely challenging, right? I mean, we've got our hands in a bunch of different opportunities, but at the end of the day, we are a diversified company uh, and we cover a lot of ground. What's unique about Lincoln relative to some other traditional developers is that we have an investment advisory business. And I think that's a logical place for growth. Our Chicago office is unique in the sense that we share space with our advisory group. And they manage roughly five to six billion dollars of assets for uh, state pension funds, and um, I think that that's a logical place to grow because they've been a, a sort of a niche middle market uh, advisor, and and I think you'll see growth there. From from our perspective, from Dan and me, it's it's really about just having more support and a wider network, and I think that that's the benefit for uh, folks like us. Yeah, you have to be excited about having that increased network and support. That's really, that's really great to hear. What what's working well right now? You know, we talked about some challenges. What's what's working well? What's easy for you to when you're structuring a deal? There's probably many components. You know, what's coming easy right now? I don't know that anything's coming easy, um, but we got to work hard for it, and we got to outwork everybody else. You know, I mean, I, I, we're just, we don't have a mandate to get X dollars out the door every year, right? And that allows us to be patient. A good year for us is, you know, three to five uh, new opportunities, you know, and, and so we don't, we're not saddled with a bunch of legacy issues that we're currently working through. I think that allows us to pounce at the right opportunity. You know, we're having a lot of discussions with lenders on the office side. You know, Chicago, unfortunately, seeing a lot of distress. Uh, in the office market, um, but that creates opportunities for groups like us. And, 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 you know, I think coming out of this, having been through a couple cycles over 20 years, I mean, we, we know how to position ourselves. We know where to, to focus. And I, I think that that's something in addition to Dan's efforts and some of these other efforts is that we're going to try to align ourselves with the right office opportunities because we're believers that that demand will come back at some point. I love the bullishness on the office, return to of the office. That's great. We got Jay in the office. I'm, I'm not today, but I was yesterday. It will be tomorrow. And I'm seeing more and more of that. I, I've got a relative who's worked for Amazon for a very long time, and she's been remote for about three years, and she was just called back to, to New York to be in the office three days a week. As a, and so moving back to New York, you know. So um, what are you going to do? So I mean, we we're seeing more and more of that in the news. I like the the bullishness on the office. You know, what's the the thesis there? What do you think of the headwinds to return uh, to more office demand? 
I, I think we need to be selective. Um, there are the haves and the have nots. Um, at the end of the day, it's about building culture. It's about building collaboration. Uh, you know, we as a company in Lincoln Midwest came back in June of 2020 as soon as we were allowed to. But it's about talent and recruiting. I mean, I, you know, in 2021, we saw 54 and a half million people quit their jobs uh, versus a historical average of 33 million. And all that did was just exacerbate the, you know, the idea that there was frustration building, right? And 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 there was um, you know, an opportunity for people to fix their day to day, improve their lives because they were tired of the, their commuter. They, you know, they were uh, tired of living in a community that, that they couldn't afford. Um, so coming out of it and, and up until about last summer, we saw robust demand in the trophy space, in new construction. The commodity space was getting left behind. And I think, you know, when you think about, you know, the, the, the U.S., they spend $5 trillion on salaries a year. And in comparison, they spend, uh, companies spend $178 billion annually on rent. It's not about rent. It's about talent and it's about the right people. And we all like to think that our jobs are really important and that the rent is one of the biggest cost items and one of the most important decisions these companies can make. It's not. It's about getting the right people. And that translates to the warehouse side too. When you look at supply chains, labor is 25% of the cost structure. So it's about having the right location, the right space, and that's ultimately going to translate to a more efficient and productive company. So for all those reasons, we believe in office. But again, you know, we get paid to be uh, selective, right? Our, our clients look to us to have that inside knowledge on what is the right opportunity, the right location, the right amenity type. If it's outdated, what, what are the right improvements that will drive demand? Uh, and I think that that's why you saw unbelievable absorption in office buildings that were constructed after 2016 up until last summer. I think that going forward, when people um, you know, get clarity on where our economy is headed, you'll continue to see robust demand. But it's going to be trophy space. It's going to be modern space. It will not be commodity space. And so that leaves a lot of people kind of with the puzzle of what do we do with this? Is it right for conversion? Can we reuse this structure for alternative uses? In the suburbs, we have not seen alternative use. Uh, you know, the, the, the highest and best use probably is industrial, but most communities aren't willing to embrace it. Uh, downtown typically has the benefit of, of converting to hospitality or multi. Uh, you know, coming out of the GFC, the Central and East Loop saw, I think, 3 million square feet of conversions. And all that did was boost rents by about 30%. So um, we'll see how this plays out. But, uh, you know, for all those facts and all those reasons, we believe in office long term. It just needs to be the right opportunity. Dan, one of the things that Peter touched on was the importance of, of recruiting talent and talent that fits that's aligned with your culture. You, uh, what well, we've always been hard to see in working with with the Lincoln team that you guys are constantly growing, constantly adding, you know, talented people. What is your sales pitch to folks who are who are looking to come aboard at Lincoln? What uh, distinguishes that work environment? What brought you from JLL, uh, and what keeps you there? So. Kind of some of the things we've touched on before, it's an entrepreneurial environment. There's really no mandates. You know, whatever lane you want to kind of drive down, you'll be supported to pursue, you know, those, whatever goals you, you may have. 
one of the things, I mean, I think the, the people are great. Uh, everyone's kind of rolling in the same direction. It's a small kind of tight knit group. It's very, very flat. So I think for people who like to kind of roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty and kind of bootstrap things together, it's, it, it's really a, a great place and it's a very rewarding place. You know, there's not a lot of bureaucracy here to, to get things done as, as Peter alluded to. So there's a, there's kind of a lot, a lot of, um, a lot of runway to kind of grow and take things where you want to go and you'll be supported along the way. And just to build on that, when we're out recruiting, I mean, people always ask me what the strategy is and I turn it back to them and I say, well, we wouldn't be sitting here if I didn't want to hear what you think the strategy should be, right? You're the expert in that space. You tell me what we should be doing and help us execute it. So again, there, there's no mandate, right? It's just um, about being efficient with our time, productive with our time and profitable for, for ourselves and for our clients. Well, I love the idea, Dan, you describing it as kind of a flat, kind of a flat landscape, right? The idea, you know, limiting hierarchy as much as you can and, and being able to create opportunities for anyone who wants to take advantage of them or pursue something that they find interesting in the marketplace. Um, I, I thought that's probably the most exciting thing of, of all of the things that you said. I think for somebody looking to come on board with a company, you know, the availability of opportunity, the, you know, limited bureaucracy to navigate uh, and be able to execute on great ideas as efficiently, as quickly as you can. Uh, I think that's, uh, the, those are really standout components of the Lincoln experience. And it seems like your office is even set up that way. Like you said, you guys were back in the office early. Everyone's there. You have the executives are right there. Doors open. You guys are do collaborate. You guys actually seem to live the the model that's preached about the return to office and the benefits for it is that, yeah, I think that that flat landscape, it's, it's not just a, a theory. It seems to actually be physically how you guys are laid out and how you communicate. Yeah, look, we don't have a mandate that people need to be here five days a week, right? I mean, we, we trust that people want to be here. Uh, we trust that we we have an environment where people want to be and they think that they'll thrive. Um, and I think empowering those employees to have that mindset, it just, you see the output and we get it, right? People have a dentist appointment midday. We're not checking up on people. We trust people. If, you know, this is, a, this is an environment where you need to be a self-starter to thrive. And, um, and just organically people come together inside the office, outside the office to uh, share ideas and, and, and advance the ball. My last question for you guys, right? We're in uh, mayoral election season here in Chicago. We've touched a little bit in Chicago in, in comparison with, uh, with other markets. What's your view you know, on Chicago and some of the surrounding counties, O'Hare, the opportunities for development, uh, conversions. Uh, how bullish are you in the market in which you sit? I, I'm born and raised in Chicago. Uh, I went to school out west. I moved back to Chicago because I think Chicago is a world-class city to live and raise a family. Uh, we have unbelievable public schools. We've got one of the best airports in the world. We have outstanding dining uh, nightlife, shopping, you know, we've got abundant supplies of natural water. Uh, I think that, you know, we, we have a perception problem. Uh, you know, people read headlines, they don't necessarily get in the weeds. And we, you know, we as a city need to come together and improve the perception of our city. 
Um, I think if if we had a climate like um, you know Denver, we'd have 50 million people living here, right? I, I tell everybody, I think from Memorial Day to Labor Day, and I think this even pushed further, you know, into maybe October 1st, it's the greatest place in the world to live. We've got, you know, a, a great climate, we've got fresh water, and, and that's why people want to live here despite the harsh winters. Um, I think we need strong leadership. We need everybody to rally behind our leaders and improve that perception problem because we are uh, the Midwest hub. We've, you know, we're, we're the third most populated city in the country. We have virtually every graduate from the Big Ten schools that wants to move here before they go on. Um, and it's a great company, a great city with diverse companies, right? I mean, our, our highs are never going to be as high as parts of the Sun Belt and the lows aren't going to be as low. So uh, we're believers in Chicago long term. We obviously have some issues that we need to work through in the near term, but we hope everybody can rally behind our leadership and, and, and push for the common good. Sports teams could be a little bit better. <laughs> yes, dark days for our sports teams, but again, I think they're building for the future too. All right. I think that that's a great place to end it. I love a good uh, promotion for Chicago. Uh, my favorite city as well, and I'll be here for a long time. So Dan, Peter, thank you both for coming on the show. Really appreciate sharing your, your insights and, um, and your experiences. And I think we learned a lot today and uh, look forward to seeing you guys next time. Thanks for having us. Thank you guys. We appreciate the partnership. This publication is intended for general information purposes only and does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. The listener should consult with legal counsel to determine how laws or decisions discussed herein apply to the listener's specific circumstances.